Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. The next two podcasts, which will be a part of Stimmy Vibrations, a day to celebrate autistic voices, are from my two wonderful co-hosts. Becca Laurie Hector of the InfoDump Files, and Kelly Braun Johnson from Intersections on the Spectrum. Becca and I will be chatting with the existential artist about his special interests of philosophy, poetry, and activism, and Kelly and I will be interviewing Marenike Giwa Anau about autism's white privilege problem and being an editor on a book about autism acceptance and identity. A link to learn more about this event that's happening on April 2nd and register so you aren't missing out on this day to celebrate Autistic Voices can be found in the podcast description of this episode. Now on to today's episode of Autism Stories, Lumila Praslova joins me to talk about designing workplaces at the margins how leadership may look different from neurodivergent minds, and the impact of flow and boundaries for autistics. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Ludmila, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Yes. Actually, it's not super long story, even though I obviously have been autistic my entire life, but I didn't realize it until a very late 2019. So that was pretty recently, and then I, I didn't get diagnosed until 2020. So it's pretty recent, but it's definitely been very interesting and very rewarding. So you, you're a professor and director of organizational psychology and teach graduate students to design workplaces for fairness and belonging. If we have some business owners or decision makers within their companies listening to, to this interview, what are some ways for them to assess where the culture of their business is on the scale of fairness and belonging? Well, there are several ways to do it, and many organizations use surveys. The problem is most organizations don't pay attention to results. Mm -hmm. So that's one indicator. And there are a couple of other things. One is if you exclude certain groups of people, so for example, if you don't have autistic employees to begin with, then obviously you won't know if they're included or not because you don't have any in your workplace. So you might want to actually check, has your 
culture and ideas about culture feed already excluded certain people, so your baseline is not actually the true baseline for all possible people that you could have included. And another way to look at, obviously, is if your turnover rates are higher for certain groups. So all of those things together would work a little bit better because I would say if hiring was valid and appropriate and people had competence-based chance to be working in the company, then surveys would have been fine. But because the entry is not equal, and then you also lose more and more people into various marginalized groups as we move along the promotion and different layers of success in organization. You have to be mindful that not all people will be included in your data if you are already excluded certain people from employment to begin with. So I understand about giving surveys, but what I'm not understanding is not paying attention to the results. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that more and why you think businesses will do that? Well, humans will do that because we don't like bad news. <laughs> when somebody tells us that I don't feel like people listen to me and I don't feel like I am valued, people very naturally tend to get defensive and say, oh, those are just complainers. Every organization has some complainers. Or it's certain part of your organization, like engineers always complain or accountants are never happy or whatever. So there is always this temptation to discount information we don't like because we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and we tend to believe that we're wonderful leaders and running a wonderful organization. So it actually takes quite a bit of extra psychological vulnerability and cultural humility and just human humility to be open to the possibility you're not as wonderful in the operation you're running is not as wonderful as you think they are. Well, that sounds very logical and makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so thanks for answering that. Some companies do it better than others. Sure, sure. Now, you know, there are so many neurodivergent people who definitely don't feel their workplace has treated them fairly and don't have a sense of belonging. How would you go about working with organizations so not only do neurodivergent people, but those from all types of backgrounds feel that they can thrive in their workplace environments? Well, I did write a few pieces about that, but I think you need to wait for the next one that I literally just submitted yesterday because I talk about creating organizations with design from the margins. Most organizations have most things in life, even universal design, design for the center. And if you read the classic universal design, it is okay. So include as many people as possible without making special accommodations. Design from the margins starts with special cases because if we solve 
issues with people who are most marginalized, then everybody in the center is also going to benefit. So when we look at things that specifically are needed for, let's say, autistic people, clear communication, transparent practices, flexibility, those things for some autistic people are absolutely necessary to be able to work. Those are also things that make pretty much everyone else much happier in the workplace. So if you design for the margin, then really all people are going to benefit. And thinking about inclusion on the psychological level, which psychological characteristics we need to consider, so trauma-informed organizational behavior, differences in communication, don't force everyone to be on Zoom because people can't function when they're all day on Zoom. Don't force people to respond to email immediately or Slack or whatever you use to ping people and interrupt them because we know that when you use instruments that are meant as in a synchronous fashion, that actually prevents people from working their best because it splits their attention in unusable tiny little chunks. So there's a lot of things that are basically reasonable good business practices, but they just kind of forgot an hour. It's inconvenient. It's just something that's fastest. But actually, if you address those things like transparency, using valid measurements for selection of employees, for performance management, you are going to help everyone. And also, if you just use reasonable flexibility, because people don't rebel against expectations for performance. People rebel when things don't make sense and something that could be easily done from home requires two hours commute. So just do reasonable things that work for most people and that will really solve most organizational issues, including not just increasing diversity or specifically making workplaces more accepting and inclusive of neurodivergent people, but it will also solve the great resignation because in general, people like the same things that neurodivergent people need to be and to work at their best. So it's kind of similar to like the principles of universal design. Right. Except universal design, people use the term universal design all the time. And if universal design was actually inclusive of the margin, that would have been good. But actually universal design is usually, doesn't go far enough. So that's why from the margin is a more recent tweak on design thinking that actually takes it a step beyond universal design classic, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Now, you know, my, my feeling is that there are so many autistic people that can be great leaders at their workplace, but maybe that's not as pop, maybe it's not a popular opinion. 
Do you think there are some myths about leadership that you think lead our business world to think um, autistics or neurodivergent folks don't make good leaders? Well, absolutely. And I have a whole article on that in Fast Company. But obviously, the certain organizations that should not be named didn't help with portraying autistic people as completely unable to communicate, be productive, and do anything. And beyond that, the myth of lacking empathy also is not helping because people say, okay, so leadership uh, requires empathy and autistic people don't have empathy, which is not true because if you look at research, then autistic people actually have more empathy than the average person. And it's not always easy to communicate it. And sometimes it's so overwhelming, people can actually freeze. But the lack of empathy is not an issue. And other, just other stereotypes, the way media portrays autistic people is definitely uh, very much as, oh, okay, they're a burden to society, they're a burden to their families, and they don't nearly show enough the actual accomplishments and performance that is way surpassing the general, the average performance. Even though, again, I wouldn't even put the argument that the performance is always surpassing because I don't think it should be your value should be measured by that but the overall uh, stereotypes about abilities and intelligence and social skills people think okay so they just they have this mental image of the person who is spinning in one place and uh, you know the kid they saw in some scary thing that certain fundraising organizations put out and they don't actually realize that they probably have met many autistic people and never realized they were autistic and they don't realize just how wide is uh, the group that really has all abilities and all levels of ability represented so I think the, the media representation just has no doubt artistic people in your papers. No, not at all. Do you think there are ways that uh, neurodivergent leadership looks different than what is traditionally thought of in these roles? Yeah, neurodivergent is such a broad category. So there are certain things that, you know, dyslexic leaders do that are very different from autistic leaders but in general all of them would be very different from the traditional stereotype of uh, you know the white horse leader slash manager giving orders because in general if you think about approaches of neurodivergent leaders they tend to be much more individuating in how they work with particular people because we had to learn how to work with ourselves. And we have a very good understanding that one size does not fit all. So I don't think a divergent leader will ever say, I treat people in the way X, and that's the only way to do it. Or maybe 
rather than never. It's, it's highly not typical. Neurodivergent leaders are much more likely to be very acutely aware that people are different and try to find ways to create their teams that are less homogeneous because they actually do want to go for diversity and for complementarity of different types of skills. So that's one way. Another way, I think many neurodivergent leaders and I think maybe specifically autistic people, but not necessarily, tend to lead in more of a thought leader fashion rather than, okay, I'm going to tell you how to do X, Y, and Z. So they're much more likely to approach leadership on a high level. This is the general idea. This is why we're doing things. So answering big questions and providing just the overall inspiration rather than focusing on, okay, there's just only one way to do things and it's my way. They're less likely to be micromanagers. But honestly, it will take a lot of research to know more because autistic and other neurodivergent people are very often kind of prevented from leadership. And most leadership has focused on how to lead neurodivergent people rather than on how neurodivergent people function as leaders. So we have a lot of examples, but the very few studies that are there really don't quite answer the question. So I think it's an area where we need to do quite a bit more before we can give a conclusive answer. Does that make sense? It makes a, makes a lot of sense and it definitely resonates with my experiences. Why do you think there has not been more research on the experiences of autistic and neurodivergent leaders? Because most research has been largely dominated by neurotypical agenda, which does not include neurodivergent adults, period. It's mostly on young children, it's on biology, mm-hmm. and if it's on adults, it's very hard for neurotypical researchers to even envision neurodivergent adults in any position but mm-hmm. in a very sheltered work environment. So the very idea of leadership and neurodivergent or especially autistic in the same sentence doesn't occur to them. So that's why don't ask questions that don't even come to your mind. If you don't even envision that such thing as uh, autistic leadership is possible, you're going to set out to study it. I mean, yeah. Well, if anyone wants to do any research out there, I probably, without thinking too much about it, probably know about a hundred autistic or neurodivergent leaders. And it probably wouldn't come out much different, the results, probably than the way what you just laid out for us. Well, exactly. But I'm a scientist. I'm trying to be responsible. <laughs> don't say that I actually have everything data point to back it up, but I do want to do this research. Uh, absolutely, and I'd love to read Send that. them my way. Yeah. All of yeah. <laughs> so life, you know, is, is so much more than, definitely more about than just work, and finding the balance between the rest of our life and work can be 
very challenging. It always seems a work in progress, at least for me. Now, you wrote a wonderful article on how finding this balance is about finding a flow and developing strong boundaries. What are some ways you've seen to build more flow and boundaries, maybe in your life or in other folks' lives? Well, I am kind of classical logistic in that flow is easy. Boundaries are not. If I'm interested in something, I'm not going to sleep and I'm not going to eat and I'm not going to care because I'm just going to do my research and live life of intellect, uh, which is definitely not the best way to go about things. So I actually have to work on boundaries much more than I need to work on flow. And there's so much interesting things. There's so many interesting things. But... Definitely trying to schedule things that are not that don't come naturally, like when you end working, for example, and also trying to say no to people who have a tendency to abuse your time. It's not the easiest thing to do, so I literally sometimes have to have little scraped for saying no because I'm so bad at it, but I'm getting better. And just focusing on those things that are priorities and that provide the most flow. But I know there's a controversy whether or not your work should be your passion. I personally couldn't do work that that wasn't my passion. It's just too miserable to spend so much time doing something that you're not passionate about. But I do know people who are able to make it work. They think about their work as, you know, this is my way to make money, and this is the rest of my life, and it works for them. They're able to make this separation and create boundaries in this way, and then they might find flow in their free time in their additional activities. So there is, again, no one-size-fits-all, because we're also psychologically different. There is the person who doesn't even know what it means to be bored, because there's so many interesting things in life. And there are people who are very easily bored and have a difficult time sticking to anything. And I'm sure there probably is something that holds their attention, but maybe they haven't been able to find it. (laughs) In general, I definitely suggest taking some time to find what holds your attention because you can't force yourself. So if your parents want you to be a doctor and you just have zero interest in it, why do it? And again, sometimes we don't even consider things that interest us. But if you raise, you know, in specific group that only works with their hands. You may not consider other types of jobs. If you are raised by the group that doesn't work with their hands, you may not consider a job that maybe what you're interested is, you know, carpentry or some kind of skill craft that makes you very happy. So sometimes we just have to experiment. Ideally, I really like the idea of young people taking a year to just experiment things but let's say you 
don't find it, and then you just kind of feel stuck. There are many stories when people try something as adults, and then they find their flow. So just don't think that, oh my gosh, I'm just limited to whatever. People sometimes think, okay, I need to be my college major when I'm 18, and this is what I'm going, going to do until the day I die. It really doesn't work like that. Because things change and jobs change, and forcing yourself into something, even if it's not your passion, is really miserable. So sometimes you just have to experiment to find your flow. Absolutely. I changed my major five times. Not necessarily proud of it, but and, and even once I graduated, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, it's pretty human thing. So... But then, you know, you can just go and do something different for graduate school, or you can just develop your portfolio with a different kind of work. So sometimes people stress out too much about just that there's just one perfect way. There is not a one perfect way. There are a variety of things that you can try and enjoy. So it's just sometimes give yourself some time and give yourself some freedom to try things that maybe will make your parents go, what are you thinking? Yeah. And, and I don't think for autistic people that linear path works for, for, I think, you know, maybe there's some people that that works for, but that linear path just does not seem to work for so many. And for any kind of person, we, we grow and we develop and we develop develop different angles, but especially if you're late diagnosed autistic, you, you can discover so many things about yourself later in life that can really shape what you do. But yes, for an have to invent something that hasn't been done before, because we don't actually fit in any kind of pre-existing mold, and well, that's fine. And who cares if we did it in our 20s, 40s, 60s? Now, for those that, um, beyond this interview, that want to learn more about you or read so many of the wonderful articles you've written, how can they go about doing so? Most of my work is linked to my LinkedIn profile. So, Ludmilla Presso is a pretty easy name to Google. And so, my LinkedIn profile is pretty easy to find. So, many of my articles are linked either under particular outlets so it would be you know things that i wrote for human resources blogs or for fast company and then also there's the featured if you browse through feature there's also some interesting uh things that might have been just in one source and it wasn't something that has multiple articles and I've read many of your great articles through LinkedIn, and we'll share that information in the podcast description of the episode. Now, beyond all the great work that you do, you have an interest in something that I'd say is somewhat of an emerging interest, emerging interest for me, but I've been a little nervous about starting it, and that's poetry. Do you have a poem that you've written that's particularly meaningful to you? very much poetry in English. So most of my poetry was written in Russian and I just kind of randomly started to speak and rhyme when I was three so I can't even take very much credit for it. And then I haven't 
touched it for a very long time, but recently, I would say, so within the last year, there's one poem that I wrote that is also on my LinkedIn. It's unincludable. So that is my one English poem that I actually published somewhere, and it is also linked in my featured from the LinkedIn. So, and that's basically about the experience of being excluded based on multiple characteristics. Well, Ludmila, I really, um, you know, really enjoy reading all your articles. Well, not all of them. There's probably too many of them to read, <laughs> but, but so many of them. And it was just really a great opportunity to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you so much, and I'm happy that we had this opportunity to chat. Thanks so much to Ludmila for the conversation. To learn more about Ludmila, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. I really enjoyed hearing Ludmila's thoughts on flow and boundaries because so often we're trying to help coach people at Autism Personal Coach to find their flow so they can accomplish the things that are important to them in their lives and to support them to advocate for boundaries that they really need. If this sounds like the type of support that's missing in your life, you can always book a free call with me today to discuss working with Autism Personal Coach. A link for the call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it, so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss communication that doesn't come from the spoken word. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.